Chapter 29 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 29 The Soft Answer. I have only one virtue that I know of I could really forgive unto seventy times seven. The Notebook One of the commonest of biographers' problems is the question of quarrels and broken friendships. At the distance of time separating a life from its record, some of these look so empty of meaning as to imperil any reputation. Yet they happened, and when they were happening they probably appeared full of significance. Other quarrels involve issues of importance in which the biographer cannot take wholeheartedly the side of his hero. Thus my own father, writing his father's life, had to pronounce judgment on Newman's side and the issues that divided them. Yet later, writing Newman's biography, he had to admit the faults of temper that at least weakened the cardinal's case, for only so could he tell an entirely truthful story. In Chesterton's life there is no such problem. Attacks on public characters in his paper attacks on abuses and ideas, absorbed all his pugnacity. Fellow writers, rival journalists, friends furnished often enough material for a quarrel, but Chesterton would never take it up. He excelled in the soft answer, not that answer which seeming soft subtlety provokes to wrath, but the genuine article. Belloc said of him that he possessed the two virtues of humility and charity, those most royal of all Christian virtues. In the heat of argument he retained a fairness of mind that saw his opponent's case and would never turn an argument into a quarrel. And most people both liked him and felt that he liked them. While he was having his great controversy with Blatchford back in 1906, it is clear from letters between them that the two men remained on the friendliest terms. Edward MacDonald writes of his experiences of Chesterton when he was working with him on the paper. He loved all the jokes about his size. He was the first to see the point and to roar with laughter when Douglas Woodruff introduced him to a meeting as Mr. Chesterton, who has just been looking round in America. He came into the office once on press day and saw the disordered pile of papers and proofs on my desk. The place was certainly in an awful mess. I wanted to show him a particular letter and shoved my hand into the middle of one pile and was lucky enough to put my hand right on the right document. G.K.C. complimented me on a filing system that demanded a keen memory and then remarked enviously, I wish they'd let me have a desk like that at home. When Derek Thomas drew his famous cartoon of G.K.C. milking a cow, he hesitated to give it to me for fear that G.K.C. would be offended. I wanted to print it in a special number and telephoned to Beaconsville. Mr. Chesterton, I have a cartoon of Derek and would like to put it in the special number. But as you are the subject of the cartoon, Derek is afraid you might not like it. I would rather it were not printed, he replied. I never liked the idea of my name being used in the title of the paper and don't want well-intentioned but embarrassing personalities. Of course, if it were highly satirical, insulting, and otherwise unflattering, I'd gladly have it on the front page. I assured him that it was anything but flattering, and on the front page it went. It was used as the frontispiece of G.K.'s miscellany. Many of the obituary writers said that he hated the cinema. 
In fact, he told me once that he had long wished to write a new translation of Cyrano and would like to try his hand at a film scenario of the play. His fingers had itched in the first place to retranslate the duel scene in order to restore the strength of the ballade in English. When he saw the film version of a Father Brown story, I asked him what he thought of it. He had liked the film as a film and the acting. He added as an afterthought, it gave me an idea for a new Father Brown story. A shorthand note was taken of the famous debate with Bernard Shaw. It was decided to devote four pages of G.K.'s Weekly to a report which I tried to compile by avoiding the third person and concentrating on significant quotations. But whereas Shaw put his points in a few words from which elaboration could be cut, G.K.C.'s argument was so closely knit that it was difficult to leave out passages without spoiling the effect. He walked into the room as my pencil went through a fairly long extract from Shaw's speech. And whose words are you so gaily murdering, he asked. Shaw's, Mr. Chesterton. Very well. Now put them all back and murder mine. I refuse to deny Shaw a full opportunity to state his case in my paper. As a result, Shaw's speech took up a great part of the space allotted, and GKC was inadequately reported. He was always careful if he had reviewed a book in the paper criticizing its ideas to take an opportunity to show the author his warm personal friendliness. Middleton Murray, sending him a book of his own, criticized G.K. as perverse for thinking communism and capitalism alike. Your clean idea of liberty and property delights me, I believe, quite as much as it does you, but it is a vision and a dream in this capitalistic world. The communist is the man who has made up his mind to go through with the grim business of capitalism to the bitter end because he knows there is no going back. He makes a choice between following a dream which he knows is only a dream and following a hope which he knows his own devotion may help to make real. Communism is the faith which a man wins through blank and utter despair. For my own part, if it were possible, I would rather see the world converted to Christianity than to communism. But the world has had its chance of becoming Christian. It will not get it again. The wrath to come, that is what communism is. And we can flee from it only by repentance. And repentance itself means communism. That is the fact as I see it. I hope, and sometimes dream, that we shall have the communism of repentance, and not the communism of wrath here in England. Chesterton replied, May 19, 1932. Thank you so much for your most interesting and generous letter, which reached me indirectly and was delayed. Also for your most interesting and generous book, which I immediately sat down and read at a sitting, which in its turn so stimulated me that I immediately wrote a rapid and rather curt reply for my own little rag. I fear you will find the reply more controversial than I meant it to be. For your book is so packed with challenges that I could not but make my very short article a thing packed with mere repartees. But I do hope you will understand how warm a sympathy I have with very much of what you say and with all the motives with which you say it. Needless to say, I agree with every word you say against capitalism. But I particularly want to congratulate you on what you say about parasitic parliamentary labor. I thought that chapter was quite triumphant. As for the rest, it is true that it has not shaken me in my conviction that the Catholic Church is larger than you or me, than your moods or mine and the heroic but destructive mood in which you write is a very good example. You say that Christ set the example of a self-annihilation, which seems to me almost nihilist. But I will never deny that Catholics have saluted that mood as the imitation of Christ. 
Lately, a friend of mine, young, virile, handsome, happily circumstanced, walked straight off and buried himself in a monastery, never, so to speak, to reappear on earth. Why did he do it? Psychologically, I cannot imagine. Not certainly from fear of hell or wish to be rewarded by heaven. As an instructed Catholic, he knew as well as I do that he could save his soul by normal living. I can only suppose that there is something in what you say, that Christ and others do accept a violent reversal of all normal things. But why do you say that Christ did it and has left no Christians who do it? Our church has stood in the derision of 400 years because there were still Christians who did it, and they did it to themselves as Christ did. You will not misunderstand me if I say that this is different from throwing out a violent theory for other people to follow. Now for the application. Some of these monks, less cloistered, are to my knowledge helping the English people to get back to the ownership of their land, renewing agriculture as they did in the Dark Ages. Why do you say there is no chance for this normal property and liberty? You can only mean to say of our scheme exactly what you yourself admit about the communist scheme, that it requires awful and almost inhumane sacrifices, that we must turn the mind upside down, that we must alter the whole psychology of modern Englishmen. We must do that to make them communists. Why is it an answer to say we must do that to make them distributists? I could point out many ways in which our ideal is nearer and more native to men, but I will not prolong this debate. I should be very sorry that you should think it is only a debate. I only ask you to believe that we sympathize where we do not agree, but on this we do not agree. Mr. Murray wrote later of Gilbert, I like the man immensely, and he was a very honorable opponent of mine much the most honorable I have ever encountered. G.K.'s Weekly was, of course, Gilbert's own platform, so perhaps his care to apologize and his great magnanimity are more remarkable in incidents outside its columns. T.S. Eliot had his platform. He edited The Criterion. Chesterton, on being reproached by him for a hasty article, not only apologized, but dedicated a book to Mr. Eliot. He had written confusing him with another critic who disapproved of alliteration, and had also misquoted a stanza of his poetry. Mr. Eliot had written, I should like you to know that it was apparently your sympathetic reviewer, not I, who made the remark about alliteration, to which it seems he added a more general criticism of mine, so that snob is not the right corrective. Some of your comments seem to be based on a belief that I object to alliteration, and may I add, as a humble versifier, that I prefer my verse to be quoted correctly, if at all. Chesterton replied, I am so very sorry if my nonsense in the Mercury had any general air of hostility, to say nothing of any incidental injustices of which I was quite unaware. I meant it to be quite amiable, like the tremulous badinage of the oldest inhabitant in the bar parlor, when he has been guyed by the brighter lads of the village. I cannot imagine that I ever said anything about you or any particular person being a snob, for it was quite out of my thoughts and too serious for the whole affair. I certainly did have the impression, from the way the reviewer put it, that you disapproved of my alliteration. I also added that you would be quite right if you did. I certainly did quote you from memory, and even quote from a quotation. I also mentioned that I was doing so casual a thing. Of course, on the strictest principles, all quotations should be verified. And I should certainly have done so if I had in any way resented anything you said, or been myself writing in a spirit of resentment. If you think a letter to the Mercury clearing up these points would be fair to everybody, of course I should be delighted to write one. 
this attitude of the oldest inhabitant was the chestertonian fashion of accepting the youthful demand for something new when a young writer in Colosseum alluded to him as out of date he took it with the utmost placidity good he said to edward macdonald i like to see people refusing to accept the opinions of others before they've examined them themselves they're perfectly entitled to say that i'm not a literary lion but a landseer lion mr elliot's answer was a request to gilbert to write in the criterion and an explanation that he had felt in a false position since he rather liked alliteration than otherwise thus too when chesterton had answered a newspaper report of a speech made by c e m Jode, the latter complained that it was a criticism not of anything that i think but of a garbled newspaper caricature of a few of the things i think taken out of their context and falsified he added that he had not said science would destroy religion but that at its present rate of decline the church of england would become a dead letter in a hundred and fifty years next that science has no bearing upon the spiritual truths of religion but has been presented at any rate by the church of england in a texture of obsolete ideas about the nature of the physical universe and the behavior of physical things which science has shown to be untrue finally that religion is vital but it is in mysticism that the core of religion lies for me and mystical experience as i understand it does not want organizing i may be wrong in all this but i hope that this explanation such as it is will lead you to think that i am not such an arrogant fool as your article suggests chesterton replied may fourth nineteen thirty i hope you will forgive my delay in thanking you for your very valuable and reasonable letter but i have been away from home and for various reasons my correspondence has accumulated very heavily i am extremely glad to remember that even before receiving your letter i was careful to say in my article that my quarrel was not personally with you but with the newspapers which had used what you said as a part of a stupid stunt against organized religion i am even more glad to learn that they had misused your name and used what you did not say i ought to have known by this time that they are quite capable of it and i entirely agree with the correction you make in the report makes all the difference in the world i do not think i ever meant or said that you were an arrogant fool or anything like it but most certainly it is one thing to say that religion will die in a century as the report stated and quite another to say that the church of england will experience a certain rate of decline whether the prediction be true or no i shall certainly take some opportunity to correct my statement prominently in the illustrated london news i hope i should do so in any case but in this case it supports my main actual contention that there is in the press a very vulgar and unscrupulous attack on the historic christian church the four points you raise are so interesting that i feel i ought to touch on them though you will forgive me if i do so rather rapidly with the first i have already dealt and in that matter i can only apologize both for myself and my unfortunate profession and touching the second i do not suppose we should greatly disagree i merely used it as one example of the futility of the fatalistic prophecies such as the one attributed by the newspapers to you but a thorough debate between us if there were time for it touching the third and fourth points might possibly remove our differences but would certainly reveal them in the third paragraph you say something that has been said many times and doubtless means something but i can say quite honestly that i have never been quite certain of what it means naturally i hold no brief for the church of england as such indeed i am inclined to congratulate you on having found any one positive set of ideas obsolete or not which that church is solidly agreed in presenting 
but i have been a member of that church myself and in justice to it i might say that neither then nor now did i see clearly what are these things about the nature of the physical universe which science has shown to be untrue i was not required as an anglican any more than as a catholic to believe that god had two hands and ten fingers to mould adam from clay but even if i had been it would be rather difficult to define the scientific discovery that makes it impossible i should like to see the defined christian dogma written down and the final scientific discovery written against it i have never seen this yet what i have seen is that even the greatest scientific dogmas are not final we have just this moment agreed that the ideas of the physical universe which are really and truly obsolete are the very ideas taught by physicists thirty years ago what i think you mean is that science has shown miracles to be untrue but miracles are not ideas about the nature of the physical universe they are ideas about the nature of a power capable of breaking through the nature of the physical universe and science has not shown that to be untrue for anybody who can think lastly you say that it is indeed necessary that religion should exist but that its essence is mysticism and this does not need to be organized i should answer that nothing on earth needs to be organized so much as mysticism you say that man tends naturally to religion he does indeed often in the form of human sacrifice or the temples of sodom almost all extreme evil of that kind is mystical the only way of keeping it healthy is to have some rules some responsibilities some definitions of dogma and moral function that at least as you yourself put it is what i think and i hope you will not blame me for saying so but as to what i said in that particular article it was quite clearly written upon wrong information and it will give me great pleasure to do my best to publish the fact in any such argument gilbert was never in the words of the gospel willing to justify himself he only wanted to justify certain ideas and the thought of having misrepresented anyone else was distressing to him even the hardened controversialist colton wrote in the course of one of their arguments if i speak very plainly of your historical methods it is not that i do not fully respect your conversion i have more sympathy with your catholicity than partly no doubt by my own fault you may be inclined to think i believe you too have made a sacrifice of the sort that is never altogether vain it is therefore part of my faith that you are near to that which i also am trying to approach and if this belief does little or nothing to color my criticisms in this particular discussion that is because i believe true catholicism like true protestantism can only gain by explosion of historical falsehoods if indeed they be false with the least possible delay if on the other hand they are truths then you may be trusted to make out the best possible case for them and my words will recoil upon myself the dispute was about puritanism and catholicism it was republished as a pamphlet it is the only case i have found in which chesterton wrote several versions of one letter to the cambridge review in its final form he omitted one illuminating illustration colton had maintained that the medievals condemned dancing as much as the puritans and had dug up various mouldy theologians who classed it as a mortal sin father lopez retorted by a quotation from st thomas saying it was quite right to dance at weddings and on such like occasions provided the dancing was of a decent kind chesterton comments we have already travelled very far from the first vision of mr colton of dark ages full of one monotonous wail over the mortal sin of dancing to class it seriously as a mortal sin is to class it with adultery or theft or murder 
It is interesting to imagine St. Thomas and the moderate moralist saying, You may murder at weddings. You may commit adultery to celebrate your release from prison. You may steal if you do not do it with immodest gestures, and so on. The calm tone of St. Thomas about the whole thing is about evidence of a social atmosphere different from that described. The rest of his analysis of Colton's method of dealing with a historical document and distorting it is in the published version. A valuable part of Chesterton's line is also interesting as a comment on his own historical work. The expert, he says, is so occupied with detail that he overlooks the broad facts that anyone could see. On this point of review of Colton's medieval history in the Church Times is illuminating. The reviewer noted that in the index under the word church occurred such notes as soldiers sleeping in, horses stabled in, and other allusions to extraordinary happenings. But nowhere, he said, could he find any mention of the normal use of a church, that men prayed in it. With H.G. Wells, several interchanges of letters have shown in earlier chapters how the soft answer turned aside a wrath easily aroused, but also easily dissipated. Another exchange of letters only three years before Gilbert's death must be given. The third letter is undated, and I am not sure if it belongs here or refers to another of Gilbert's reviews of a book of Wells. 47 Chiltered Court, N.W.I., December 10th, 1933. Dear old G.K.C., an illustrated London news Xmas cutting comes like the season's greetings. If after all my atheology turns out wrong and your theology right, I feel I shall always be able to pass into heaven, if I want to, as a friend of G.K.C.'s. Bless you. My warmest good wishes to you and Mrs. G.K.C. H.G. My dear H.G., I do hope my secretary let you know that at the moment when I got your most welcome note, I was temporarily laid out in bed and able to appreciate it, but not to acknowledge it. As to the fine point of theology you raise, I am content to answer, with the subtle and exquisite irony of the Yanks, I should worry. If I turn out to be right, you will triumph, not by being a friend of mine, but by being a friend of man. By having done a thousand things for men like me in every way from imagination to criticism. The thought of the vast variety of that work, and how it ranges from towering visions to tiny pricks of humor, overwhelmed me suddenly in retrospect, and I felt we had none of us ever said enough. Also your words, apart from their generosity, please me as the first words I have heard for a long time of the old agnosticism of my boyhood, when my brother Cecil and my friend Bentley almost worshipped old Huxley like a god. I think I have nothing to complain of, except the fact that the other side often forget that we began as free thinkers as much as they did, and there was no earthly power but thinking to drive us on the way we went. Thanking you again a thousand times for your letter, and everything else. Yours always, G.K. Chesterton. My dear Chesterton, you write wonderful praise, and it leaves me all a quiver. My warmest thanks for it. But indeed, that wonderful fairness of mind is very largely a kind of funk in me. I know the creature from the inside. Funk and something worse, a kind of deep, complex cunning. Well, anyhow, you take the superficial merit with infinite charity. And it has inflated me, and just for a time, I am an air balloon over the heads of my fellow creatures. Yours always, H.G. Wells. Gilbert loved to praise his fellows in the field of letters even when their philosophy differed from his own. In the obituaries in G.K.'s Weekly, this is especially noticeable. Of two men of letters who died in 1928, he wrote with respect and admiration, although with a mind divided between pure literary appreciation 
and those principles whereby he instinctively measured all things. Of Sir Edmund Goss he wrote, The men from whom we would consent to learn are dying. G.K. felt he could never himself appreciate without judging, but he could learn from Goss a uniquely sensitive impartiality. With him there passes away a great and delicate spirit which might in some sense be called the spirit of the eighteenth century, which might indeed be very rightly called the spirit of reason and civilization. May 26, 1928. These are the things we hoped would stay and they are going, he quoted from Swinburne, and of him and of Hardy he died in 1928, and in whom he saluted in honorable dignity and simplicity he felt that though they had stated something false about the universe, that all the good things are fugitive and only the bad things unchanged, yet something rather like it might be half-truth about the world, I mean about the modern world. These poets lamented the passing of roses and sunbeams, but in the modern world, it is rather as if, in some inverted witchcraft, the rose tree withered and faded from sight, and the rose leaves remained hovering in empty air. It is as if there could be sunbeams when there was no more sun. It is not only the better, but the bigger and stronger part of a thing that is sacrificed to the small and secondary. The real evil in the exchange that has been passing over society is the fact that it has sapped foundations and, worse still, has not shaken the palaces and spires. It is as if there was a disease in the world that only devours the bones. We have not weakened the gilded parody of marriage. We have only weakened the marriage. We have not abolished the House of Lords because it was not democratic. We have merely preserved the aristocracy on condition that it shall not be aristocratic. We have not yet even disestablished the church, but there is a very pressing proposal that we should turn out of it the only people who really believe it is the church. There is now in the minds of nearly all capitalists a sort of corrupt communism. The bank remains. The fund remains. The foreign financier remains. Parliamentary procedure remains. Jicks remains. These are the things we hoped would go, but they are staying. Sixteen years earlier, Chesterton had, in The Victorian Age in Literature, characterized Hardy's novels as the village atheist brooding and blaspheming over the village idiot. Yet Cyril Clemens has told me that Hardy recited to him some of Chesterton's poetry, and I think this obituary links with that fact in showing that a profound difference in their philosophy of life did not prevent a mutual appreciation and even admiration. Gilbert Chesterton entered the last years of his life having made no enemies in the exceedingly sensitive literary world to which he primarily belonged. Whether he had made any in the world of politics, I do not know, but he certainly felt no enmities. He said once it was impossible to hate anything except an idea, and to him I think it was. Against one politician who died in 1930, he had many years ago launched his strongest bit of ironical writing. Lord Birkenhead, then F.E. Smith, who had spoken of the Welch disestablishment bill as having shocked the conscience of every Christian community in Europe. The last lines of Chesterton's mordant answer ran, For your legal cause or civil, you fight well and get your fee. For your god or dream or devil, you will answer not to me. Talk about the pews and steeples and the cash that goes therewith. But the souls of Christian peoples, chuck it, Smith. Later, Smith had stood with Sir Edward Carson against Cecil Chesterton at the Old Bailey. Now he was dead, and many who had feared him in his lifetime were blackening his memory with subtle sneers and innuendo. Gilbert refused to join in this, and he wrote in his paper, In him we were confronted by and fought, not a set of principles, but a man. Lord Birkenhead was a great fighter. 
with one more pagan virtue, pride, he would have been a great pagan. Lord Balfour died in the same year. With him neither the paper nor its editor had fought personally, but upon almost all his policies had stood in opposition. Yet few better appreciations of him appeared in the article entitled by Chesterton, A Man of Distinction. The English squire was an unconscious aristocrat. The Scotch laird was a conscious aristocrat. And Lord Balfour, with all his social grace and graciousness, was conscious and even self-conscious. But this was only another way of saying that he had a mind which mirrored everything, including himself, and that whatever else he did, he did not act blindly or in the dark. He was sometimes quite wrong, but his heirs were purely patriotic, both in the narrow sense of nationalism and in the larger sense of loyalty and disinterestedness. He instances Balfour's policies in Ireland and Egypt and continues, in some ways he seems to me to have been too good a Stoic to be entirely a good Christian, or rather, to put it more correctly, to feel, like the rest of us, that he was a bad Christian. There was much more in him of the Scotch Puritan than of the English Cavalier. It is supremely characteristic of the present parliamentary atmosphere that everybody accused Lord Balfour of incomprehensible compromise and vagueness, because he was completely logical and absolutely clear. Clarity does look like a cloud of confusion to people whose minds live in confusion twice confounded. People said his distinctions were fine distinctions, and so they were, very fine indeed. A fine distinction like a fine painting or a fine poem or anything else fine, a triumph of the human mind, the great power of distinction by which a man becomes in the true sense distinguished. March 29, 1930 the distinction Mr. Swinnerton draws between Belloc and Chesterton may be a little too absolute, but substantially it is right. One reason for the love of Chesterton was that while he fought he sang lays of chivalry and in spite of all his seriousness warred against wickedness rather than a fleshly opponent while Belloc sang only after the battle and warred against men as well as ideas. Georgian scene, page 88. Did the tendency to find good in his opponents? Did Chesterton's universal charity deaden, as Belloc believes, the effect of his writing? He wounded none, but thus also he failed to provide weapons wherewith one may wound and kill folly. Now without wounding and killing, there is no battle, and thus, in this life, no victory, but also no peril to the soul through hatred. The Place of Chesterton in English Letters, page 81. In various controversies during the final years of G.K.'s Weekly, the very opposite opinion is expressed. Hoffman Nickerson writes about the subversive nature of Chesterton's work, of giving weapons to communism and doing his bit towards starting a very nasty class war in America. Mr. Nickerson was also to develop this theme in a series of articles in Chesterton's own paper. Correspondents, too, complained often enough in the paper of its attacks on vested interest and on other schools of thought than its own. In the course of a controversy with Mr. Penty, in which I think G.K. most distinctly misunderstood his opponent, but in which both men kept the friendliest tone, Penty says that Chesterton treats as a drive much that he himself would call a drift, that the mind is more in fault than the will of mankind in getting the world into its present mess. With this diagnosis, Chesterton certainly agreed for the greater part of mankind. He spoke often of a madness in the modern mind. Psychology meant the mind studying itself instead of studying the truth, and it was part of what had destroyed the mind. Advertisements often tell us to watch this blank space. I confess I do not watch that blank space, the modern mind, not so much for what will appear in it, as for what has already disappeared from it. 
Thus, too, when the Reverend Dick Shepherd remarrying a divorced woman, i.e., encouraging her to take again the solemn vow she had already broken, said that he heard the voice of Christ. Go in peace. It was not for impiety that Chesterton condemned him. He wrote with restraint, There is scarcely a shade of difference left between meaning well and meaning nothing. Was Penty still right in thinking he saw a drive where he ought to see a drift, and Nickerson in thinking he was dangerously subversive in his attitude to the rich? And anyhow, what about Belloc? I incline to think that the truth was that while G.K. could never hate an individual, he could hate a group. If he suddenly remembered an individual in that group, he hastily expected him from the group in order to leave the objects of his hatred entirely impersonal. Thus he hated politicians but found real difficulty in hating a politician. He hated what he called the plutocracy, but no individual rich man. I do not think, however, that while believing firmly in original sin, he was somewhat inclined to see it as operative more especially in the well-to-do classes. His championship of the poor was in no way impersonal. His burning love and pity went out to every beggar. He tended to love all men, but the poor he loved with an undivided heart. And when he thought of them, his thoughts grew harsh towards the rich, who were collectively their oppressors. I doubt if he allowed enough for a degree of stupidity required to amass a fortune. He would have agreed that love of money narrowed the mind. I doubt if he fully grasped that only a mind already narrow can love money so exclusively as to pursue it successfully and I am pretty sure he did not allow enough for the fact that rich, like poor, are caught today in the machinery they have created. He saw the bewildered, confused laborer who has lost his liberty. He failed to see the politician also bewildered, the millionaire also confused, afraid to let go for fear he might be submerged. And yet at moments he did see it. He wrote in the paper a short series of articles on men in the 19th century who had created the confusion of today on Malthus, Adam Smith, and Darwin. Far from its being true that supernatural religion had first been destroyed and morality lost in consequence, it had been the Christian morality that was first destroyed in the mind. G.K. surmised Adam Smith's teachings as, God so made the world that he could achieve the good if men were sufficiently greedy for the goods. Thus the man of today, whenever he is tempted to be selfish, half-remembers Smith and self-interest. Whenever he would harden his heart against a beggar, he half-remembers Malthus and a book about population. Whenever he has scruples about crushing a rival, he half-remembers Darwin and his scruples become unscientific. Because none of these theories were in their own day seen as heresies and denounced as heresies, they have lived on vaguely to poison the atmosphere and the mind of today. English conservatives had been shocked when Chesterton began. Mr. Nickerson was shocked when he was ending, because he demanded a revolution. Surely Mr. Nickerson said, if he looked at communism closely, he would prefer capitalism. He not only would, he constantly said he did, but he wanted a revolution from both. He preferred that it should not be nasty, for what he wanted was the Christian revolution. Like all revolutions, however, it must begin in the mind, and he felt less and less hopeful as he watched the blank space. But I do not believe that Chesterton failed because he had not at his command the weapon of hatred. Here, Belloc surely makes the same mistake that Swift, whom he instances, made and for the same reason. The Frenchman and the Irishman understand the rapier of biting satire, as does not the Englishman. For direct abuse of anyone, no matter how richly merited, nearly always puts the Englishman on the side of the man who is being abused. What happened to Swift's Gulliver, that most fierce attack upon the human race? The English people drew its sting and turned it into a nursery book that had delighted their children ever since. 
there are more ways than one of winning a battle you can win the man instead of the argument and chesterton won many men or you can take a weapon that once belonged chiefly to the enemy but which chesterton wrested from him a very useful weapon the laugh orthodoxy doctrinal and moral was a lawful object of amusement to voltaire and his followers but now the laugh has passed to the other side and chesterton was with belloc himself the first to seize this powerful weapon thus when bishop barnes of birmingham said that st francis was dirty and probably had fleas many catholics were furious and spoke in solemn wrath chesterton wrote the simple verse a broad-minded bishop rebukes the verminous st francis if brother francis pardon brother flee there still seems need of such strange charity seeing he is for all his gay goodwill bidden by funny little creatures still i shall never forget going to hear chesterton debate on birth control with some advanced woman or other outside the hall were numbers of her satellites offering their literature i was just about to say something unpleasant to one of them when a verse flashed into my mind if i had been a heathen i'd have crowned near his curls and filled my life with love affairs my house with dancing girls but higgins is a heathen and to lecture rooms is forced where his aunts who are not married demand to be divorced the rebuke died on my lips why get angry with the poor old aunts of higgins demanding the destruction of their unconceived and inconceivable babies swinburne had mocked at christian virtue but the dolores of chesterton replied to him i am sorry old dear if i hurt you no doubt it is all very nice with the lilies and langers of virtue and the raptures of roses of vice but the notion impels me to anger that vice is all rapture for me and if you think virtue is languor just try it and see but in fact g k did not merely use laughter as a weapon he was often simply amused and did not conceal it he told desmond gleason that he remembered reading renan's christ while i was standing in the queue waiting to see charlie's aunt but it is obvious which is the better farce for charlie's aunt is still running no wonder that eileen dugan when she pictured him as a modern st george saw him shouting gleefully bring on your dragons even dragons may be bothered by the unexpected and it may well be that when the rapier of anger has been blunted against the armor of some accustomed fighter he will be driven off the fields by gales of chestertonian laughter End of chapter twenty nine